Last week we began a series through the book of First Peter titled Keeping the Change. I shared some background information and we started digging into the opening few verses, but it was to be continued, just like all the best episodes of Little House on the Prairie. So today we will complete our discussion of the opening of the inspired book. Let's read it together from verse 1, 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, should we do the thing? E squared, elect exiles, that's from last week. Excuse me. Let me get back to the seriousness of reading the Bible here. Of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not, do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And then as a bit of a working thesis, particularly in terms of how this fits into the larger message of the book, I summed up this passage with the following statement. To keep the change, we must be changed first. As we'll see next week, one of the major ideas of Peter's first letter is that believers ought to be living a changed life to the point of actually being holy even until we are like God in our character. In his opening here, though, Peter puts first things first. Indeed, we must truly be saved if we are to live like saved people. This sounds so simple, and yet I'm convinced much of what is wrong with Christianity today could be solved if more Christians were truly saved. Too harsh? You tell me. Do most professing Christians really seem to live as elect exiles, or aren't many of us still just trying to fit in? Listen, we cannot 
be the change or keep the change or bring change or even continue to be changed ourselves if we were never radically and completely changed by God in the first place. As verse 3 puts it, by being born again. My sad guess is that a low percentage of the world's professing Christians are actually born again. How do we rectify this? Well, to be completely blunt, God has to do it. God has to save people, for real. When we try to save them, the result is often fake and false. Only Jesus saves. Isn't that part of what we learned last week, that God is the one who saves? But we also learned that He will only do it through true faith. So how do we help people have true faith? Well, to some degree, that's the whole point of church. I said there would be five truths from this passage, but I decided this week to add a couple more verses, make it six. We covered three truths last week. I don't want to spend a lot of time on review. So if you didn't hear it, please go back and listen, because that sermon was as foundational as it was mentally challenging. Briefly then, from last week, we must first understand, stop making me emotional during the music. My nose is running. Eyes are cloudy. From last week, to review, we need to first understand, number one, God chooses us. Oh, thank you. You don't want me to pull this up and use it? I don't know if she did that for me or for her. I'll take it. God chooses us. From our text, we can see that God makes the first move in salvation. Through foreknowledge, verse 2, He chooses us. Literally what it says in the NESB, those whom He chose through foreknowledge. I won't start back into all that means. It doesn't mean. But every believer should understand that God loved us before we loved Him. He chose us before we chose Him. God came after you, brothers and sisters. And I hope you never forget it because this means that you are very special to God. He chose you. And what that means is that He will also do for you all of the other things that we will talk about today. Starting with the next thing, God regenerates us. That's number two. This truth is so important that even in our brief review today, I'll repeat the verse from whence it comes. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To be born again, as Jesus first put, put it, is to be regenerated, to be made alive from deadness. That is to be saved. We were spiritually dead and destined for eternal death, but God caused us to be born again, regenerating us to spiritual life and even to eternal life. This is our living hope. And make sure to notice that our hope is not in our own ability to have faith. Our faith is the all-important conduit. But remember that God is the one who causes us to be born again through our faith. Only God can save us, and not we ourselves. This leads right into the next truth, that God keeps us. 
from verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The basis of understanding behind the fact that God keeps us that He does not let us go, that we cannot lose our salvation, rests in the fact that we did not get it for ourselves in the first place. And so the first two points have as their natural outcome this third point, God chooses us, God regenerates us, God keeps us. Hope you're starting to get the idea that God is first in all of this, that if you're trying to live the changed life or to endure in your Christianity on your own without God actually having caused you to be born again, without actually being an elect exile, chosen and set apart by God, which would mean that you're also trying to keep yourself rather than knowing that God is keeping you, well, you're going to fail. And you might even become one of those sour, so-called former Christians, who, of course, were never actually Christians in the first place. How does that happen, by the way? It's happened to some high-profile people in recent years. How do many people wind up with something other than true faith? How do so many people claim to be saved who probably are not actually saved? I think part of the answer is found in what I've been trying to say, that we are being led sometimes to put our faith in faith. Like as if our faith by itself is good enough to do the saving. It's almost like, ah, the awesome power of faith. No, listen, the essence of faith through which God saves is in crying out to Him. Asking to be saved. True faith is begging faith, okay? Begging Jesus said, blessed are the beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean? What if he actually meant those who beg God for heaven are the ones who get it? And of course, that's exactly what he meant. Only the Lord can save you. Faith is simply the way you ask him to do so. Last week and today in this review, our text forced us to think about salvation in terms some preachers avoid, to be honest. We had to ask, am I chosen? Am I born again? Now, your natural follow-up might be, what if I don't feel chosen? What if I'm not sure that God has caused me to be born again? Two things could be true if you're not sure. Either you just don't feel it even though it has actually happened, or else it hasn't happened. This brings me back around to the part we pastors usually say more often, that if, in fact, you truly have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know that God has caused you to be born again, whether you feel it or not. And that would mean you are truly saved. Listen, you absolutely can know that true faith results in your being saved by God. That is true. How can you know? We'll talk about one of the bonus ways you can know in the next point this morning, but in all of my explanations, I never want to water down the importance God has placed on your faith. The first and foremost way you can know you are saved is this. Do you truly believe in your heart and have you confessed with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that He died, that He rose from the dead? Is that your testimony? 
Have you put your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? If so, according to Romans 10, 9 and 10 and many other verses, you are saved. God has promised to truly save us through true faith. What I'm trying to do in teaching this opening of 1 Peter is to make sure you remember that God is the one who actually saved you. Which again means that He chose you and regenerated you and that He is the one who will keep you. Now that's mostly some cleaning up from last week, but I'm even more excited to get into the next portion of our text and the fourth truth regarding what God does, which is this. God proves us. From verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So we talked a little bit already today about how we can know that we are chosen, regenerated, and kept, right? I said, first and foremost, you can know these things are true if you truly have faith. Just as it says in verse 9, that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. But here we see that God also helps us find assurance of salvation through what Peter calls various trials. Now, one might be tempted to ask, is being grieved by various trials actually worth gaining a stronger assurance of salvation? Maybe you're thinking, hey, I'm already sure my faith is genuine, so spare me the proving grounds, you know? All right, so how is the proving of your faith more precious than gold, as it says? How is it worth various trials? Ask me again when you're dying. Come back to me with a terminal cancer diagnosis and your question will already be answered. If you knew that you would be dead or Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how much would proof that your faith is genuine be worth? today. What if you could be even more sure that you are saved? We say we know, but there is great value in proof, my friends. If you could have a certificate of authenticity in regard to your faith signed by God, what would you pay for that? We're talking about eternity here heaven or hell? What would the guarantee of heaven be worth? Well, it'd be worth much more than gold. Peter says, if you've gone through difficult trials, hard enough that fake faith wouldn't have made it through, and you still have your faith, then my friend, you have been gifted with a certificate of authenticity from God, and it is, in fact, signed by Him in the sense that your name is written in His book, and He put it there Himself. We could ask my good friend, Carl Hendrickson, right now, and he could tell you about how this works. Not long ago, Carl was diagnosed with cancer. That was hard enough. Within this last week, we were told that he has days to live. Before this latest report, I was thinking maybe a year, at least maybe more. So this hit hard last week and all felt very sudden. Carl is in hospice now at home. And there's nothing else they can do for him. Probably a few days, they said. 
This man is a true friend, a true friend. And he's also a former member and leader in my previous church. But more importantly, he's Pastor Connor's father-in-law, Caroline's dad. Elizabeth, Caroline's sister, is also a member of our church. And so these members of our fellowship and my extended family are really hurting right now. But let me tell you, their dad is a godly man who I respect greatly. And what I really want to say is that Carl has faced his pending death with a faith that has proved genuine. In fact, Carl's faith is so genuine that the doctor asked he and his wife, Jane, how they could be so calm with death at the door. The doctor, the the oncologist, essentially asked them to give the reason for the hope that they have. 1 Peter 3.15 And so they took the opportunity to tell him all about Jesus. See, their faith is genuine, is yours. Is your faith genuine? Do you have proof? How can you get proof? I don't wish tragedy upon myself or upon you. But when it comes, that's when you'll know. And in a very strange way, I believe the knowing will be worth the tragedy. How does that work? Particularly when death is the prognosis. Well, faith looks beyond this life, doesn't it? Yes, genuine faith does, for sure. Now, while I think the various trials being referred to here can include just about any kind of hardship, I also think the specific trials on Peter's mind for this particular group of churches was likely persecution. In fact, these churches were about to face persecution. Some might say won't come until after we've been raptured. Regardless of the various positions on that, prophecy is clear that the church will be persecuted to the breaking point before Jesus returns. Many who do not really know Christ will fall away. What about you? As it turns out, these churches in Asia Minor addressed by Peter became a potent example of the kinds of trials he had in mind. Just a few years later, thankfully, they had Peter's letter in hand before the worst of it hit, particularly in Bithynia. See, just a few decades after this letter came to them, persecution had spiraled even to the point of public execution. As the governor of Bithynia, Pliny, made clear in a letter to Trajan, the Roman emperor at the time, Governor Pliny wrote Emperor Trajan to say that he had been executing all the Christians he could find as if to gain approval. Trajan wrote back, and we have these letters, approving of the executions, adding only that the governor should let Christians live as long as they would renounce their faith in Christ, returning to so-called Roman gods. What do you think? Do you think their faith was genuine? Well, certainly it was for some, or there would have been no executions. But again, I ask, 
What about you? Would your faith prove to be genuine under such a trial? I know that for any of us, this kind of experience would be brutal beyond words and our poor families either watching or even dying with us. I can barely fathom it. But frankly, we should all force ourselves to fathom it because the Bible is clear that this is coming. And for many Christians through history, it has already come. But let me ask this question. Where will you find a higher proportion of truly born-again believers among those who claim Christianity? In America, do you think? Or rather in some Islamic state or in China or in any place where persecution against Christians is extreme? We think we have it better here in America, and of course, that makes sense. But if we had eternal perspective, we might find out otherwise. Why? Because the proof of genuine faith is priceless, more than gold. We have that. What's the trouble with our Christianity around here? I'll tell you the trouble, it's unproven. We have become a people whose faith is unproven. Our testimonies are weak. American Christians often talk more about earthly riches or blessings from God rather than various trials. And while I'm not saying our level of suffering is anything we can control or that we shouldn't be thankful for blessings, I am saying our blessed situation is actually part of the problem with our Christianity. Some of us just really need to see God prove our faith through various trials. Sadly, the faith of some will not endure such testing, demonstrating they are not actually chosen, not actually born again, and therefore not kept. I've seen it in people I've baptized, sadly. I've read about it professing Christians falling away. Various trials come, and the proof shows that they are not actually saved. Others endure. Many persevere, like Carl. And like individuals I could name within our own congregation, enduring even right now, and in, in this they inspire us all. Our church is made up of plenty of who have proven faith. Now, if your faith hasn't been proven yet because it hasn't been severely tested, that doesn't necessarily mean it is inauthentic, of course. In fact, even in our text, it says, when necessary. Doesn't mean it's inauthentic if it hasn't been tested. What if the proving is coming tomorrow? That's my question. And while we could talk about trials that we all face sooner or later, what about the ultimate proving trial called persecution? Nothing proves or disproves faith like persecution. Do you think this can't happen here? I know of people who have lost careers over Christ, something that couldn't have happened 20 years ago. If that's you, that's proof, my friend. If your persecution had anything to do with your faith in Christ and it held fast, your faith held fast, that's proof. You got a certificate of authenticity. 
right there, worth more than gold. Some of you lost friends or even family over your commitment to Christ because you stand for His truth. You're less well thought of. You've lost reputation or popularity in the world, maybe at school. You've been cussed out, singled out, and left out, but you've not walked out on Jesus in spite of the pain. That's a certain measure of proof as well. Regardless, though, I can't help but tell you that we haven't seen anything yet because we haven't. I believe that before Christ comes, the church will be tested like never before, and not only in certain places, but globally. I believe we will be forced to stand for Christ at great peril, even in our lifetimes. And while obviously in some places around the world that's already happened and is happening, I believe end times persecution is coming right here and sooner rather than later. What costs us in popularity now may eventually cost us our livelihoods, if not our lives. As your shepherd, your pastor, I would encourage you to get ready. When the time comes, don't be surprised, as Peter says in chapter 4 of this same book. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught unaware. Get ready. And part of that, I think, is in making sure your faith is completely in God. Not in yourself. Not even in your faith. Only Jesus saves. Has He saved you? We all have trials to various degrees at all times, but I'm telling you, persecution is coming to the church, and nothing will prove or disprove your faith like what is coming, partly because that is the purpose behind persecution. God allows persecution to test your faith. None of it happens outside His will. What now? Rejoice. Isn't that what Peter says? While this does not mean we're not also grieved, as he also mentioned, it does mean we take joy in the good part. What is the good part in persecution of various trials? The good part is that God is proving our faith. And what does that earn for us? Besides a priceless guarantee of our salvation, besides a strong testimony, what does faithfully enduring through various trials earn for us? That's the next point. Number five, God rewards us. From the second half of verse seven, that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I'd like to start on this point by asking, if the only faith we have is basically forced upon us by God, or perhaps gifted to us in such a way that we don't even really have a choice, then why would we be praised for having it? If there is no individuality to our faith, why are there individual rewards? And of course, by now you know that I do not believe faith is forced upon us or frankly, imputed. Uh-oh. No, I don't believe faith is imputed, though the grace of salvation certainly is. Righteousness is imputed. 
But instead of our faith being imputed, I believe that there is an aspect of our own choice and our own decision within our faith, even though it is helped along by God, empowered, as I like to say. Why would God reward your faith if it isn't really even yours to begin with? And I know, again, some of you are unaware that this stuff is being taught, but I'm warning you that it absolutely is being taught by otherwise conservative teachers to the point that I will probably get blasted for daring to say that faith is not imputed. But I'll take the heat. In order to be clear, I would encourage you to reject any definition of faith that means you and I did not have a choice or that we were somehow zapped with faith. One of the many reasons I reject this type of view is that the Bible says your faith, your faith, will be rewarded. Yes, as if you had actually done something because you have. You have trusted in Christ and you were not made to do it. But before I wander back down the rabbit hole of last Sunday's message, let me get to the point, which is that God rewards proven faith. By the way, does God reward faith that does not pass the test? No. Look at the context. The faith being rewarded here is faith that endures through various trials. That is genuine proven faith. And what kind of rewards can we expect? We could look back at verse 4 covered last week where we learned that our heavenly inheritance is kept imperishable, undefiled and unfading by God. So whatever our rewards may be, we can know they aren't going anywhere since they are kept in heaven for us. But again, what kinds of rewards can we expect? While I don't have time to do an exhaustive study of heavenly rewards today, off the top of our heads, many of us can probably remember that Jesus talked about greater responsibility for some in heaven, greater leadership. That's a reward. Those who are faithful with little here will be counted on to be faithful with much there. Without a doubt, we are promised the potential of heavenly accolades or even greater prominence which might cause us to recoil because we have no ability to receive such rewards in purity on earth. Since in our current state, these things often lead us into pride and sin. But in heaven, apparently such things could be a reward without causing problems. In fact, this is precisely the kind of reward mentioned in our text where it says that those whose faith proves genuine will receive praise and glory and honor. But again, if you're like me, this part is a little bit hard to accept. Isn't heaven a place where only God gets the praise, glory, and honor? As I studied this passage, I even tried to make sure we should not interpret this as potentially referring to praise and glory and honor for Christ rather than those who have proven faith. But that is not what Peter says. No, in fact, later in chapter 5, Peter will talk about an unfading, unfading crown of glory granted to some. But right here it is clear that praise and glory and honor is going to be heaped upon all those whose faith endures the various trials of this life. Doesn't that kind of go against your grain, anybody? That we get that? It goes against my grain. We have trouble accepting that we would be praised or honored or given glory, especially at the return of Christ when it should be all about Him. 
And so we can't believe this could be our reward, not even for faith that is proven through fire, but now I must ask, where did we get the idea that as humans we could never be praised and honored or gifted with glory from God? I can tell you we did not get it from the Bible. Because in the Bible, this very truth is actually mentioned repeatedly. Did you know that Eastern religions teach that people will no longer exist as individuals in eternity? Throughout the various forms of panentheism, each person who makes it to the afterlife will be absorbed into whoever and whatever is God. Further, according to these mystical religions, we are supposed to be happy about our individual existences coming to an end because we are so useless and meaningless as individuals. Only the collective matters in this type of thinking. But folks, Christianity doesn't teach this kind of thinking at all. Not even a little bit. No, in fact, Jesus and his apostles taught that how we live and who we are here on earth will have great bearing on who we are and what we will have in heaven. You better believe it. Your life on earth has eternal consequences. You can't earn salvation, but you can earn rewards. Jesus said, many who are last here will be first there. He said, those who die for Christ here will receive special honor there. The people who serve here will be greatest there. Even the treasures given generously here will lead to immeasurably better treasure in heaven. And right here in our text today, we see that those whose faith proves genuine will receive praise, glory, and honor at the return of Christ. What will this look like? How can these heavenly rewards work? How can some have more or different rewards than others in heaven and everybody still be happy? How can a perfect place still hold individual rewards? Maybe I can't picture that in my fleshly brain, but make no mistake, the Bible teaches that God rewards proven faith, and He does so in eternal ways. If you need another verse, Jesus promised it this way, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. That sounds pretty individualistic to me. Peter tells us that at least part of the reward Jesus brings is praise and glory and honor for those who have proven faith. Implied is the idea that the more trials you've had to go through, the more praise and glory and honor you will receive. This almost makes me want to go through something more difficult than I have so far. Almost. But instead, I'll take what God sends and what God allows because He loves me and He knows what is best for my present and even for my future glory with Him. But can you see how believing this truth from God's Word could change your perspective on various trials, especially persecution? And that is entirely the point. Verse 8 is interesting. As Peter praises those who have not seen Him, yet still believe in Him. I think we sang that this morning. Interesting how that happens so often. He praises those who have not seen Him yet still believe in Him and even that we can experience inexpressible joy at the very thought of seeing Him someday through our genuine faith. Peter may have been recalling that moment he was there when so-called doubting Thomas only came to believe by putting his hands 
into the scars of Christ, falling down to worship Him. But then Jesus said, you have seen and so you believe. Blessed is he who believes without seeing. This was a prophetic reference by Christ to our very selves, to you and me, and to the reward He will bring along when He comes for those who believe without seeing. Sometimes you wish you could see, well, we get a special reward for that. And in this, I think also part of the point is that seeing Christ in person when He comes may well be the greatest reward of all. Even thinking about it brings joy inexpressible to the one who truly believes. Let's look at the sixth and final truth in this passage. And again, all these truths are intended to show that God is the first one to act, that God comes looking for us. That the changes He's going to ask us to make next week, be holy for I am holy, can only be made because He first changed us. So number six, God sends messengers to us. We handled verse nine last week along with point one, so now verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And I got to pause right there and just say, wow. The Spirit of Christ was in them. That's the prophets in the Old Testament, folks. Never forget that Christ is eternally God. And so you got the Spirit of Christ indwelling the prophets to let them know ahead of time that He's coming later, not only in spirit, but in body, that He's going to suffer on the cross, that He's going to be glorified through the resurrection. All of this the prophets predicted centuries before it happened. How did they know? The Spirit of Christ came to them and spoke from within them. That means the words of the Bible came from the Spirit of Christ, which I might add is also the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one, as is clear in verse 2, as I mentioned last week, the Trinity is right there in verse 2. But reading on, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you or proclaimed to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This text, these two verses, is just beautiful. I'd encourage you to meditate on these two verses next week. I could read this again and again to you, emphasizing different phrases to show us the lengths to which God has gone to save us. You've got the prophets being sent thousands of years ago even, some of them. The Spirit of Christ within them being sent those who preach the good news being sent and the Holy Spirit being sent to me and you, all while angels look on and wonder, what is God doing? Why does he care so much about these crazy people? That's my own little thought. Isn't it beautiful? Can you see that it's all from God and all for your, for your benefit? 
You are the end game here. Do you see that? All this sending from God is for you. The Bible is written for you. Prophets were sent for you. Preachers like me were sent for you. The Holy Spirit was sent for you. For God so loved the world. Didn't he? Friends, we need to see how great the Father's love is for us. Here the angels are pictured as observers, but indeed God sent angels too in certain cases, and the very word angel means messengers sent from God. If you think about it, God practically emptied heaven for us. He sent everybody. He even sent Himself. And now our God continues to send. Today, He sends missionaries all over the earth to places where they've never even heard the name of Jesus. You don't want to know how many places there are like that, how many millions of people have never heard the name of Jesus. It's millions. So he sends missionaries. He sends because he loves. It's amazing. He sends missionaries, evangelists, that's in the Bible, pastors and teachers, Ephesians 4. And all these, again, are being sent by God for you. I mean, God sent everything and everybody He had for you so that you could hear His message. And when you respond to that gospel, this good news about Christ, you make it all worthwhile from His perspective because God just flat out loves you that much. And let me point out that if Peter had been trying to put these six things in order, truths, these six truths in order in terms of process, he would have put this one second in our text instead of sixth. When it comes to the work of God and salvation, that which we've been discussing, the sixth truth would have come, uh, this sixth truth we just mentioned would have come right after God chooses us. So in order of how it actually works, it would go like this. God chooses us. God sends messengers to us. God regenerates us, God keeps us, God proves us, and God rewards us. So you can just draw an arrow in your notes back and just, in terms of the process, it would be stuck up there. Of course, Peter wasn't worrying about that when he wrote this. He just wrote this as it came to him, and I think he really just wanted to take a moment at the end of all this foundational theological opening just to remind us that on top of all these other five areas of God's work, oh yeah, don't forget he also sent messengers just so you could even know about any of this that had ever happened. The Apostle Paul was clear about the importance of messengers. Writing, how will they know? How then will they know? Romans 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. He's kind of taking aside here to say, not everybody's going to believe. We know that already. As Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Sometimes it feels like nobody. And then verse 17 comes back around. So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Can you see that God sending messengers to us is essential? 
Indeed, preaching the word to those who have, have and those who have not heard is so essential that without it, nobody would be saved. Should I be afraid to say such a thing? Does emphasizing the messenger take away from God's work and salvation? No, I think not. This is clear as day in both texts. If there are no messengers sent by God, there are no Christians on earth today. And to be clear, that means there are no humans on their way to heaven. Without messengers, we are hopeless. I pray that you'll understand today that if you've ever heard the gospel, it is because God sent messengers. He even sent messengers to messengers to messengers, and now thousands of years later, I stand before you today as one of those messengers, and even if you've never heard it before, you've heard the gospel this morning. If I had done nothing but read the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, you would have heard the gospel. I'm a preacher who has been sent by God, and my message is His message for you. But are pastors or people with positions like me the only messengers God would send? My goodness, no. We would be hopeless if that were the case. Last time I checked, not everyone in this community attends a Bible-preaching church, right? Was everybody up and down your street piling in their cars this morning, just pouring out of their houses about time to go to church? No. In fact, only 4% of people in the Northwest attend any kind of church regularly. That means 96 out of 100 folks. It's a higher number in Ridgefield. This is all across the Northwest. It's still low comparatively. 96 out of 100 folks in this region of the country are never going to come hear the gospel preached by a pastor in a church. What now? You know exactly where I'm going with this. You're exactly right. Every single follower of Jesus is called upon to preach the gospel, and when we refuse, we are disobeying in a way that potentially has eternal consequences. I didn't come up with that. Paul did, and Peter did. They explained that when those who are sent do not go, there are serious consequences in terms of loss for the sent person who misses out on being used by God, certainly. And I wouldn't want to gamble on how these consequences work for lost people either. God is sovereign, but the text says what it says. How will they know unless we tell them? Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. To whom was he speaking? He was speaking to everyone who would ever claim to be his disciple, his followers. And longtime Christian out there, if you ever, even in the back of your mind, entertain the thought that somehow Christ's commission was only for the original disciples, explain to me how any of us would be here in church today if that had been the case. Can you offer an explanation for how the gospel would still be spreading across the earth if Jesus only wanted the original 12 disciples to proclaim the gospel to creation? Obviously, they're dead. So let's not be silly. Christianity would have ended by the second century if that were the case. And in fact, it would have never gotten off the ground in the first place if only 12 people were spreading the word. No, the Bible says those who have not heard will never know unless we tell them. Who have you told lately? Maybe somebody's stuck back on the first point about God choosing, and you're thinking, well, how do I know who to tell? Here's the answer. Tell everyone. Just like Jesus said, tell the whole world. Tell anyone who will listen. You don't try to figure out who might or might not have faith. 
You don't worry too much about their response in the moment either. You just tell them, God will sort out those who have faith and those who do not. And that is the way it has been since Jesus sent out his disciples the first time when he said, if they don't accept you, guess what? They may not. Some won't. Shake the dust off your sandals and go to the next town. Notice Jesus didn't say, shake the dust off and go home. How many of us have done exactly that? Don't raise your hand. We've been rejected, so we quit. Wrong answer. Let me circle back to our primary text from Peter where he says, God is the one who sent messengers to you. That is incredible to me. Let me ask you to think for a minute this morning. Who did God send to you? It had to be somebody. You didn't learn about Christ and his gospel, about how to be saved from sin out of thin air. Maybe you can think of more than one person, but who shared the gospel about salvation with you in such a way that you came to understand it and as a result put your faith in Christ? Who did God use to get through to you? I want you to do two things. One, thank God first because he is the one who sent that person to you. And two, thank that person if possible. Because even in so doing, you might just realize that you too can be the person to be thanked someday by somebody else. Let me just tell you from experience, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, not even parenting, that is as rewarding as knowing that you had something to do with somebody else coming to Christ. And don't even start with me about it's all God. No human should get any credit or encouragement. What does it say? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Go tell someone they have beautiful feet today. I dare you. Yes, I know salvation is all God. And he is the one who sends messengers. But you heard what we read from the Bible today, didn't you? People who are sent have to obey. Somebody obeyed by sharing the gospel with you, and you can obey by sharing the gospel with somebody else. Absolutely nothing you might do in this life could matter more, and nothing is more praiseworthy. So, we've talked about a lot of things, but here at the end, as we respond to the Word of God, I want to ask some of you to think of someone you need to tell. To whom will you be the preacher? You ought to bring the gospel to somebody If you want to follow Jesus, he has sent you. So who is it? I encourage you to make a commitment to talk to that person right away. And then one last thing. Maybe you're just coming to understand the gospel even today. What is the gospel? Let me show you how I often share it when I don't have a lot of time. Very briefly through something I've heard referred to as one-verse evangelism. And I'm purposefully going to refrain from engaging my seminary training where you all think I learned so much. Some of us know we didn't learn as much as you think there. Learned a whole lot more through experience. I'm going to put all that to the side. I'm not going to quote 18 scriptures because I want you to see how simple this can be. And in the process... Someone here might even respond to the gospel for the first time today. So here's the gospel. Lord, give me the words. 
but from one verse. I like to use Romans 6.23, which says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Three parts. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some of you are smart enough you could take it from there, right? You got a piece of paper, you can draw a bridge to explain the difference, the gap between us and God. The wages of sin is death. That's both now and later, okay? That's both spiritually now. We are dead in sin when we're born. We don't have, we don't have that ability to relate to God. We, we need to be born again. The wages of sin is death. It also means eternal death. We're going to pay that later if we don't do something about it. The wages of sin is death. That's the side we start on. God is over there. Eternal life. The free gift of, of God is eternal life over here. How do we go from the wages of sin being death to the free gift of God as eternal life? It's the last two words, three words, four words. <laughs> Through Jesus Christ, five words, our Lord. <laughs> I was just thinking Jesus, okay, one word. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And actually the whole gospel is right there, by the way, in those three words. Jesus Christ, Lord. Jesus means God saves. How does he do it? through the Christ, the Savior, the promised one. What do you need to believe about Christ? That He's Lord, that He's God, that He came in the flesh to die on a cross for our sins and to rise again showing He's Lord. I could go on, but that's what you need to understand. You start with your sin. You start with the fact that you're not okay with God. He's not okay with you. wasn't okay with me either. At some point, a messenger was sent and told me the gospel, explained that through Christ I could be forgiven of my sin and come over to this side. Okay? Try to keep it simple, so I'll stop there. You can use that. Maybe there's somebody here today that finally understood. If so, how do you move across the side? Sometimes we talk about praying a prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the way I was saved. I prayed a prayer. I told God, yes. We don't want to make the prayer the, like some kind of magic words or something you have to say. So we've got to watch that. But there's going to be a moment where you say, yes, I, I want to, I, I admit, confess, repent of this sinfulness that I have over here. I understand that through faith in Christ, I can come over here. God, could you please do that? He does it. Did you get that today and last week? Jesus saves Would you pray with me? Lord, for anyone here this morning who uh, has understood this for the first time, we know that we can't really walk across without your help, but I just believe you love us so much that you want to help somebody to draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning to move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. And we know that Jesus Christ paid the price. He built the bridge. He made the way. And it somehow you've said that when we put our faith in Him, 
you will save us. You will take us. We don't even really walk across. We just put our faith in you and you just move us over. You're the one who saves. God, I pray you'd save someone today through a mustard seed of faith in Jesus Christ. The bare minimum, all we really need is faith in who He is, the Lord, the Savior, and what He did, that He died on the cross and rose again, proving He was God. That kind of faith, Lord, I pray somebody would just repent today, turn away from that dead place, and turn to You and let You save them right now. And Father, we have a baptism coming up, and I know we have, I don't know, 10 or so, 9, 10, planning to take their stand for you through that biblical way, the way that you told us to take our stand. It's not how we're saved. It's how we proclaim and profess our faith to the church, really, and say, hey, we're in. So uh, I pray if there's anybody here that's been saved today or recently and want to consider baptism, to let me know so we can talk about it. Thank you for moving in our midst. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.